Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Hey, kind of a, a cool day today. There are a couple of holidays that our country is celebrating today. This is not Christian holidays, but they are holidays that here in our nation we're celebrating, and God always puts his church in a certain time and place, uh, and it's there. The church is always put there to point people back to him and who he is, and I just see a couple of echoes of eternity in these two holidays today, so I just wanted to acknowledge them. The first is Juneteenth, so happy Juneteenth, everybody. This is the holiday that acknowledges June 19th, 1865 in Galveston, Texas. It's when the last of the slaves were set free, and we as the church look at that and we go, hey, all people are created in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity and respect. People were never meant to be property. They were meant to be free to worship in spirit and in truth. And so we look at that and we see just a little bit of Christ's prayer being answered on earth as it is in heaven, where we will worship side by side, every tribe, tongue, and nation together. And so we celebrate. And then we look at the the other holiday today, which is Father's Day, it's Happy Father's Day to all the dads uh, that are here at our church. And what, what, of course, we see in Father's Day, an echo of eternity where God presents and reveals himself as Father, right? So we, dads, are supposed to echo the Father's voice into the lives of our children. It's really a hard job, all right? And we get it wrong all the time. Apart from the grace of Christ, we have no hope, right, dads? We all know that for sure. But we know that we have an image that we can look back to and say, this is how we are to love our children because of how God loved us. So it's really cool just to see the echoes of eternity. And I encourage you as you go through just life as a citizen of heaven, as Paul has talked about in our letter to the Philippians, to think, what does it look like to help the world around me see eternity through what's happening in the present, right? All right, with that said, let's get over to Philippians chapter 3. We got a lot of work to do today. If you're new with us, we're walking through this letter this summer, um, the letter to the Philippians, and I want to kind of remind us of the situation that we're walking into. As we get in today, the author is a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, and he is in a Roman prison, a first century Roman prison. It's not great, all right? It's not comfortable at all. And the reason he was put there is because he was preaching the gospel. And what we saw a couple of weeks ago is that some of his old friends who he thought were his brothers in Christ, they're actually some of the ones trying to keep him in prison so that they can have his platform. And yet, despite this, he's unjustly in prison for preaching the gospel. His friends have betrayed him. And still, this guy is brimming with joy in this letter. And we're gonna, what we're going to get into today is, why is Paul joyful when his life is not great? But this is not what any of us would consider a great situation. He's gotten the go-to-jail card a lot of times in the monopoly of life. And today, we're going to hear the, the deep reason why Paul is joyful when his circumstances and like present situation and future outlook 
are way worse than what his resume deserves. I want you to hear that. What we're going to see is that the Apostle Paul has an awesome resume and yet a really rough life. And despite that, there's something that keeps him joyful. And I'm telling you, we need this. We need to embrace a Christianity that carries us through suffering and also a Christianity that can defeat the thing in our hearts that plagues our faith, and it's called entitlement. I've seen this to be a huge hole in our theology. When suffering comes our way, what often happens is we get mad at God, and I'm not talking about the initial emotional reaction. The Psalms make plenty of room for that. It's okay. Why, God, how long, O oh Lord? That's okay to cry out. I'm talking about the settling in attitude, this perspective of our suffering that says, God This is not fair that this would happen to me. Why would you let this happen to me? God, look at all I've done for you. And y'all, Christians experience suffering. There's nothing in our faith that exempts us from suffering. There's plenty in our faith that says we're going to have suffering. But like all humans, we're, we're human, we suffer. And oftentimes some experience, whether a significant life discomfort that's either really intense or really prolonged or both. When that comes, we can can start to think, I don't deserve this. And that, unless we allow the word of God to deal with us and the spirit of God to deal with us, that will morph into, I wonder if God's even real. Because a just God would not allow this to happen to me. I deserve better. But the Apostle Paul today, he doesn't just say, oh, it's going to be okay. He gives us a whole new perspective. He's going to show us his resume in chapter 3, the things that make him secure and happy. Excuse me, I should say, the things that used to make him secure and happy. But then he's going to turn around and say, actually, he's found something way better. Something that can't be taken away. Something no amount of persecution or bad circumstance can shake. So what we're going to do today is we're going to tackle head on the idea of self-righteousness, what this is, as the Apostle Paul is going to bring it up, what it is, why it is actually so toxic to your soul, to your faith, to your eternity, and then why Christ-righteousness is so much better. I'm so excited. The, The stuff the Apostle Paul is talking about is the breakthrough so many in our context here in Charlotte need. We need freedom from the kingdoms we are trying to build and finding the better way of Christ, all right? So we're just going to walk through uh, Philippians 3. We're going to go 1 through 11, and we're going to see what it is, why it's so toxic, and we're going to finish with just the better way of Jesus and the blessings of embracing Christ's righteousness. All right, we'll start in verse 1. Y'all ready? I feel like you wanted to say yes even more, but again, I'm not going to be the guy that gives you a second chance, so we'll try again next week, guys. Um, I know Northeast is more ready than Providence Road. That's cool. Um, I'll make it a competition. All right, here we go. Verse one. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. All right, so whatever Paul's about to say, he is glad to say it Catch this, again. You know the old adage that when you, whenever you're sick of saying something, the person you're saying it to is just starting to hear it, okay? Whatever this is, and I'm contending that the thing that he's going to say is the danger of self-righteousness is so important that Paul's, it's a good safety measure for you to hear it again. 
almost as if when, think about this, when talking about our own pride, maybe we don't hear everything we need to hear the first time that we hear it. So maybe if you're sitting there and you're thinking you've been in church before, you've heard sermons on a familiar topic, good news, you are exactly the person that Paul is writing to today. The rest of us, pretty aware of our pride and locked in. But if you're like, yeah, yeah, pride bad, Jesus good, heard it. You're the one that needs this. This is for you. Be encouraged. Verse 2, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Dogs, evil workers, mutilate the flesh. We can assume these are all the same. He's repeating for emphasis. And he's saying three times, watch out for these. These, Those who mutilate the flesh are evil and they are among you. What's he talking about? Verse 3 gives the clue. For we are the circumcision. The ones who worship by the Spirit of God boast in Christ Jesus and don't put confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. That is a strange thing to say. I mean, unless there, there's got to be something going on here. There's a contrast that's happening. Those who, go back to the previous verse, those who mutilate the flesh, Paul's talking about circumcision. And what he's getting at is this new church has people from different backgrounds in it. Some of them are Jews. Some of them are Gentiles. The Jews would have been circumcised as children according to God's law because God commanded the Jews to be circumcised as a sign that they were his people. Well, now some of these Jews have become Christians, but then there are Gentiles who are not circumcised. And the Jewish Christians seem to be telling the Gentile Christians that unless they get circumcised, they're not true Christians. Kind of like Christians today who say, unless you dress a certain way or act a certain way or vote a certain way, you can't be Christian. But Paul says, no, 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 no. We are the circumcision. And the we is the ones who worship by the spirit of God and who boast in Jesus. They don't boast in a circumcision. In fact, Paul's like, we don't put any confidence in this sign of circumcision because that's a sign that we actually have some control over. And because we have control over it, we could take pride in accomplishing it. At its core, y'all, this is what self-righteousness is. Confidence in what we can do. And when I say confidence, I mean where you find your security and status, right? Uh, let me give it to you this way. Self-righteousness is whatever it is about us that we think makes us acceptable and valuable. All right, pretty simple. Whatever it is about us, this is what self-righteousness is. Whatever it is about us that we think makes us acceptable and valuable, it's our resume. And the very next thing Paul does is show us his resume, what his self-righteousness has earned him. Look at verse four. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has ground for confidence in the flesh, I got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Okay, this is wonderful that Paul is the one speaking to this church. Because this is Paul saying, those of you who are bragging about your circumcision, which is weird anyway, right? (laughs) Paul's like, ha, I got you beat. I got more bragging rights than any of you. Because if this did make us acceptable and valuable, I'm at the top of this mountain. You're circumcised. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the day for circumcision. You keep going on and on in there. See, that's what he's doing. Being a Pharisee was a good thing in their day. Paul's saying, I'm the best at being Jewish. Like I got a... um, my college sweetmate, freshman year, 
uh, was a guy named John Bowman. John was Jewish, but he wasn't just Jewish. He self-professed his label. He was super Jewish, okay? He was, by the end of our freshman year, he was the president of the Jewish fraternity. And he got this T-shirt with the Superman logo on it, but then the peyotes, the hair curls down the side of it, and called himself the super Jew. And that's what the whole fraternity called him. This is, in effect, what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm the best. I'm the best at this. And that's exactly what these Jewish believers needed to hear. Because they are trying to prove themselves. Trying to find their righteousness, their sense of acceptance and value, through their resume. And we all do it still. We claw and we claw to be accepted and counted as valuable. Whatever it is that enables you to look in the mirror and make you feel good about yourself, that's your self-righteousness. I think about, I know today is Father's Day, but I think about how hard moms have it a lot of times in the very sort of climate that we create, even in the church. Like, I gotta feel successful. So you compare yourself to other moms. You gotta be better than the other moms. You gotta have your kids speaking three languages, eating vegan, doing advanced calculus with their little puff snack things, right? All, all doing it while looking very put together. Security is in your performance and in your appearance as a successful mom. And don't tell me you don't care what other people think. You deeply care about what somebody thinks. Maybe it's your mom and how your mom is looking at the way that you're parenting. Same thing is true for dads. I could talk about everyone in whatever station you're in. So let me talk about pastors for a second. <laughs> Man, we pastors try to find security and status in how much other people notice our success. But we don't want to say it because we also crave praise for how humble we are. <laughs> we are the worst, okay? <laughs> Just the worst. We're looking for security and status. I want my job to be secure. I want everyone to praise me for being so successful and so humble right? I know. We're awful. I mean, the only hope I have is you are just as awful as I am, right? And God is super gracious. Like, welcome to Mercy Church. You're awful. God is gracious. And we talk about it every week, okay? Um, listen, to find where you are putting your righteousness, just think about the things that when you get criticized for it, it, just, it cuts the deepest. Maybe even causes you to panic a little bit. Like when you're younger, it's often career dreams or maybe marriage dreams. Like you're being scared of not finding the right person or finding the right job or getting on the right track at the right time. So people affirming you in these areas is super important. And when a door closes in one of those areas, a relationship ends that you didn't think it would or you didn't get the job or things aren't working out, things get a little scary. Now you start to get a little bit older, start thinking about things like financial security, and ironically enough, family stability. The Lord, should the Lord grant you a family, and instead of that being a blessing, it starts to be something that you get nervous about. A stable family makes you feel, man, I'm acceptable and valuable because look at my children, look at my financial stability, look at my home. But it's the same thing underneath. The way my old pastor used to say it is the most fundamental human need is for righteousness. All of us find it somewhere. Look at verse 7. Look at how Paul responds to it. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, 
I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. So what we're moving into here, we talked about what self-righteousness is, that thing that we find security and value in. And now we're moving over into why self-righteousness is so toxic for the soul. Paul says all that resume stuff, all the things that gave me righteousness, he says now... I take all that stuff and there are two things. I categorize them two ways now that I've found Christ. They are loss and they are dung. And let's just start with dung, okay? Um, I have middle schoolers, maybe that's why. All right. The Greek word, welcome to your Greek word lesson for the day. Um, the Greek word for dung is scubala. Isn't that a great word? Scuba with an L-A at the end. Scubala. And it really just is scuba light. It even sounds like it's just bad, right? Let, let's try this out together. Both of our campuses, on the count of three, we're going to say scuba, okay? A dirty word to say in church. Dirty because it actually is dirty, all right? On the count of three, one, two, three, scuba. All right, welcome to your Greek word. Now, here's what's cool. The proper translation for scuba is dung. <laughs> they got it right, all right? And if you have a translation to try to clean that up, you can't clean up scuba, okay? It's what it is. Paul actually, it's crass intentionally. He's trying to communicate a point. He considers his resume just a big old pile of scuba, completely worthless compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. The resume of righteousness is now worthless. What a word to us who put degrees on our wall and trophies on our shelves and constantly self-promote what we've done and this and that. Are we willing to count all those things that we found our security and value in, our righteousness in? Are we willing to count them as scuba? And you say, yeah, but wait a minute, Spence, aren't my kids, my job, etc., aren't these God's blessings? Exactly. They're gifts to be stewarded and enjoyed, not to be repurposed into a source of value and security and identity for you. But Paul's other thing he says about his resume, oh, it goes deeper. Told you there were two things, a scuba, but also I want to go back to verse seven. I, th I think this is just a, this might unlock something for some of y'all. Everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ, a loss. I think this is the deep water of the gospel to dive further into. Paul didn't say, didn't just say the things he used to find righteousness in, he counts as like net zero, worthless. He did, but he goes further. He says they're actually net negative. They're a loss. They weren't just of worthless value. They were something he had to reclassify. They used to be positive for building his self-righteousness. But now he realized these accomplishments are somehow harming him, and he'd be better off without them. Here's why. They were fueling his pride, his sense of self-worth. And because of finding self-worth there, he didn't really need Jesus. See, it's our sense of superiority that our works righteousness causes us to feel that will keep us from knowing our need for Jesus and running to him. Y'all, it is our poverty that enables us to receive the riches of Christ. You gotta catch this. In fact, let me, Jesus talked a little bit about this. Luke 18, verses nine through 14. It's a little par parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. He said there were two men, they went up to the temple to pray one was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, 
greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says to the Pharisees listening, I tell you, that one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector realized in his poverty of spirit, realized his desperation for Jesus and the only hope of righteousness that he had was in Christ, not in himself. The reason self-righteousness is so toxic to your soul, so dangerous to really knowing God, is that the very things that make you feel secure and happy are likely the very things that keep you from true security and happiness in Christ. Think about the security your wealth brings. It keeps you from feeling like you need to depend on Jesus. Is wealth bad? No. But can it become your sense of security instead of Christ? Absolutely. That's why Jesus is so big on generosity. Because otherwise, you'll buy the lie that wealth equals security, and you can't take that with you, and it never actually delivers you true security. The more you get, the more it calls you to get more. But think about your morality, your do-goodery, that you think, well, you think, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm a pretty good person. Which might make you think, I don't really need Jesus for that. I can just be a good person. Yet Scripture says the, the wage of one sin is death. But we buy the lie that our morality gives us and start to think that we deserve something. What Paul is getting at is the very things that used to bring him the gain in self-righteousness are now, they're not just scubala, they're his enemies. He's got to count them as loss because they're keeping him from knowing Christ. That is why self-righteousness is our greatest enemy to keep us from knowing the true righteousness of Christ. If right now you feel like you don't really need Jesus, like, really, how much would your life change if you didn't have them? Because you're good. Then humbly, I want to encourage you to really look at the foundation that you're building your house on. I think you'll find its own sand, regardless of what it is. You desperately need the better righteousness of Christ. And I'm telling you, just the, the climate that we live in around here, you could go day by day, the number one I feel like the number one obstacle to the gospel in our city is people going, I don't know that I really need that. That's a, a lie built on false senses of righteousness. But Paul, <laughs> this leads to the best part of this. He counts his righteousness as dung and loss, and then he shows us why. He shows us the surpassing value of Jesus. This is what God's inviting us all into today. This is where I want to spend the rest of our time in this message. What we get when we gain Christ. Why in the world would we count this all as scubala and loss? It's because of what we get when we gain Christ. Look at verse 9. Oh. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, 
being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. The rest of our time, I want to talk about what happens when you embrace Christ's righteousness. Verse 9 says you're found in him, to be found in him. Oh, I want you to hear some freedom in this for some of y'all. Some of you are on a journey and you're trying to find yourself. It's a common thing. There's no shame in it. People get involved in all kinds of hobbies and pursuits because life brings them to a point where they're looking and asking a question that they didn't used to ask. And it's that question like, who am I? It's like you used to know, but for whatever whatever reason, you're not there anymore. What self-righteousness says is keep trying to figure it out and justify yourself. Make yourself feel whole or complete or worthy or at peace. But the great news about the message of Christianity is you don't have to go find yourself. Instead, you can be found in him. Don't have to find yourself, try to discover who you are. God finds you and shows you who you were always meant to be. That's the first thing. When I embrace Christ's righteousness, I don't find myself. I'm found in him. What peace that brings. I've quoted to you before an old hymn from uh, James Proctor a couple hundred years ago where he said, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. He finds you and makes you complete. The second thing in verse 9, through faith in Christ, we get God's righteousness. Not only are we found in him, but we get God's righteousness? That's crazy to me. That's perfect righteousness. Perfect value, perfect acceptance, perfect holiness. The perfect righteousness of God is now yours in Christ. When I embrace Christ's righteousness, I receive righteousness by faith, not by works. I get the holy, perfect righteousness of God by faith in what Christ did for me on the cross. Because Jesus, the perfect son of God, transferred that righteousness to me. It's amazing. This is a blessing of the gospel C.S. Lewis called this the great exchange. He said, Christ who is perfectly righteous and you who are perfectly a sinner. (laughs) You and I, we're sinners. He takes our sin up on the cross and transfers his holiness and perfect righteousness onto us. And we're now reconciled back to God the Father. This is so good for the one who's striving and trying to be accepted and valued. Those past mistakes that you're trying to work so hard to make up for so that maybe you can be somebody again worthy of something, you can rest. But you you can receive righteousness by faith in what he has done for you. Look at the next blessing of embracing Christ's righteousness. You can know him, verse 10. Know Jesus. Man, I say this every year um, when we study the Psalms. Our aim is here at the church. It's not just to know about God. It's to know God. Christianity isn't the study of God. It is the announcement of the possibility of a relationship with God where you can know him like a child knows a father. You can know Jesus. He has sent his Holy Spirit so you can walk with him. When you embrace Christ's righteousness, you can know him. Think about that. There's so many views in the world on God, right? Sorry about that, guys. Um, So many views in the world. There's the idea that God doesn't exist, 
right? It's not actually a very popular theory anymore. Atheism is dying and religion is growing right now. I promise you, read the statistics. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. But some of you, God as a force, like Eastern mysticism or Star Wars, you know, just kind of uh, moving around and everything. Some view God as a divine clockmaker, like he created the universe, got things started, but now he's got nothing to do with the world. Others think he's kind of just a divine lawgiver and scorecard counter, tallying up rights and wrongs, and he'll judge you at the end of your life. But what Christianity is saying is he's a father who is all-powerful and holy, but is also accessible to you. How? Well, first, because he's granted you his righteousness. So now you can be in his presence. And then he's granted you that presence to walk with you every day and guide you. You can talk with him in prayer. You can know him through his word. He's personal and accessible and near, living inside, indwelling every Christian. This is the only religion like it. And when you know him, Paul says in verse 10, look at what he says next. You can know the power of his resurrection. That's amazing. To know the power of his resurrection. There's a verse in Romans 8 that says the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is in us, bringing us to life. You got to understand, this is why we Christians believe there's always hope. When the world says, uh-uh, people don't change. We say, that's true, unless they have Jesus. Because God brings dead people to life through Jesus. God changes hearts through Christ. God makes you a new creation. When you embrace his righteousness, you can walk in his resurrection power. So your addiction that you're hiding, nobody else knows about, it can be broken. Not by willpower, by resurrection power. Your estranged relationship with your child who's now an adult, it can be healed. Not by willpower, but by resurrection power. Your bout with fear or lust or addiction can be won, not by willpower, but by resurrection power. Your marriage that is in a stalemate or ice cold right now can be brought back to life, not by willpower, but by resurrection power. And that's us getting down on our knees and saying, God, not by my righteousness or for my glory, but for your glory and by your righteousness would you work here. Watch him work. And then he says, when I suffer, when I suffer, I can embrace it as fellowship with Christ himself. That's verse 10. I can grow closer to him in suffering. Talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes you will suffer for being a Christian. And when you do, that is a holy opportunity to walk in the footsteps of Christ. You draw closer to him in suffering than in anything else. And whether your suffering is for your faith or just because, man, we're in a broken world. And in a broken world, there will be suffering. When you suffer, you can draw closer to Christ because he suffered. That's what we heard last week. Pastor Jake and with Joseph, he suffered, took on flesh, humbled himself, suffered for us so that we might be set free from eternal suffering apart from him. So every moment here of pain and suffering is actually an opportunity to lean in and know him more. Christianity makes plenty of room for suffering. Scripture doesn't call it a faith weakener. It's meant to be a faith strengthener because I don't drift further from him. I'm actually now closer to him. I need him more. What a gift Christ's righteousness allows us in suffering. And finally, Paul says in all of this, verse 11, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. 
I love it when Paul talks like this, just super real. Because that's what it kind of feels like. Like, I don't really know how he's going to do it. I don't know how God's going to do all this, especially with a messed up person with my kind of baggage. Right? Remember what he was talking about? When he was the one that was like the best at persecuting the church? He complained all the time. He's not far, he's far from perfect. And yet he says, because his righteousness is found in Christ and not in his resume, because of that, he will reach the resurrection among the dead. When you embrace Christ's righteousness, your hope is in eternity with him. He's talking about eternal hope. That's what this is. The resurrection from among the dead. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole new sermon about exactly what the resurrection from among the dead, when it happens. Instead, I'll tell you the hope in it. It's that one day we will arrive in the presence of Jesus and see him face to face. And we'll spend eternity there. And that is so far better than anything in this short moment, this fleeting moment we have here on earth. In fact, Paul says in the letter to the Romans, my present sufferings, they're not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us in the day of Christ. We Christians believe, he told us it'll happen. It's gonna happen. Eternity is our certainty that we cling to. And so we put our righteousness in him, our security and value in him, and in him alone, I don't wanna stand in anything that I have done, lest that get in the way of receiving all that God has for me in Christ. Will you let him and him alone be your righteousness and lay everything else down Count it as worthless when it comes to righteousness. Count it perhaps as the very thing that is keeping you from knowing Christ. The thing that you thought you had identity and security in. The very thing that might be keeping you from a desperate, desperate spiritual poverty need of Christ. And then he can meet you there. That's actually how I want to close um, in a time of very intentional prayer and reflection for us left a couple of minutes for us to do this, both of our campuses, and even our scripture memory verse uh, for this week and next is to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What I want you to do, uh, both of our campuses, I want you to get into a posture of prayer, if you would, which is to bow your head, close your eyes so that you can respond to the Lord. Uh, if you're not a Christian, I, I want to ask you to consider the gospel message you're here. Might as well. Might as well consider it, and I'm going to walk you through that. If you've never prayed before, I'm going to walk you through it. It's okay. If you've been in church for 30 years and heard 30,000 sermons, like I said at the beginning, you're exactly the person Paul was talking to anyways. And here's what I want us to do. With your, in this posture of prayer before the Lord, I want your, the disposition of your heart to be reflected even in your hands. And would you just sort of open your hands out? just demonstrating with your body a posture that says, God, everything that I have, and I want you to think about the things that are most sacred to you. Everything that I have, I'm going to count it as loss, as worthless, when compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I want you to ask God, What have I been placing my security in that isn't you? What have I been finding my acceptance and 
value in. That's not what Jesus did for me. Because God, I don't want, I don't want, maybe I've just never seen it, I've been blind to it. God, would you reveal it to me? Even if it's a good blessing that you've given me and I've turned it into something that's actually keeping me from knowing you. God, I'm open-handed with it now. And if you're not a Christian, I invite you to this same exercise. God, I've, I've had these things. These things are what make me worthy. It's how I see myself as valuable. My job, my family, my resume, whatever it is. But I want to surrender it all to you today. Because I want, I want forgiveness for my sin. I want the hope of heaven. I want it all. And I can't have it apart from you. I want that certainty. If you're not a, like I said, if you're not a Christian, you just say, God, I, I give it all to you. I repent of my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me. The great exchange, I receive that today. I receive your righteousness as I confess my sin. I believe you rose again, which means new life for me. I can change, not by willpower, but by resurrection power. You take just a moment. God, all we have. Search us. Spirit, do your work that only you can do. There are no power in my words, only in the Spirit of God and the Word of God. So Spirit, do your work through your Word. Would you convict? Would you encourage those of us who've been striving See, as you're sitting there with your hands open with all of your stuff, I also want you to sense the Father pouring the blessings of security and worth and value and eternity into those hands and forgiveness and righteousness and love and joy and peace that passes all understanding. He's filling those hands with all of these blessings for you because he loves you. It's a good father who loves you. Thank you, Father, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We sing, we celebrate, knowing that our words, our songs, man, they they can never do you justice. But they bless us as we bless you. We worship you and we praise you and we say thank you for your grace to us in Christ's holy name. Amen.